Let's open up to Matthew chapter 13 as we now jump back into our series entitled The Kingdom of Heaven. And we're almost finished. We're wrapping it up in the next couple of weeks. Reestablishing for ourselves an understanding of the biblical idea of Christianity functioning within this world. This idea was introduced by Jesus himself as the kingdom of heaven. I believe synonymous with the term kingdom of God. Knowing and understanding that our world is really divided into two kingdoms. From a biblical perspective, though we have varying nations with various uh, systems of government and so forth, the Bible looks at this world in which we live in as two kingdoms diametrically opposed to one another. We have, of course, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, that he inaugurated through his crucifixion and resurrection. The first words out of his mouth after the word repent was that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here and has arrived. And though we see things deteriorating in the world around us, the Bible has shown us that also and told us and warned us of that fact before its coming so we would not lose heart. But in the midst of the deterioration of the system and society around us and the world around us, God says He started a work. And that work began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now all things are being made brand new who are part of that kingdom of God, starting with you and I. And we know that Paul and other places indicate that the world itself will be renewed one day. Of course, Revelation chapter 21 gives us the hope of a new heaven and a new earth. But to help his disciples realize that the kingdom of God wasn't going to be established in the fashion in which they anticipated, that fashion, of course, found in the Old Testament prophets, They didn't understand that the Old Testament prophets were speaking of, of course, a suffering servant and a victorious king. They believed that either there were two messiahs or that this was all going to happen at one time, not realizing that he was going to suffer initially and then reign when he came back for a second time. And of course, he needed to establish in the hearts and the minds of his disciples, those 12 closest to him that the kingdom of God was going to start very in a very small way, but become something so great that they couldn't even anticipate how large and how much of a dominant uh, presence it would have even within a fallen world. And to help them understand that, he gave them what is known as the parable of the mustard seed, which we'll be looking at today in verses 31 and 32. So if you're in your Bibles, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, and chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel is known to be the, uh, the chapter of the parables of the kingdom, notice what Jesus says to his disciples. And another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is, is the least of all the seeds, But when it has grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. As I stated last time, one of the professors that I uh, had the privilege of hearing stated that 
He believed that a pastor shouldn't even begin to try to interpret the parables of the Bible until they have studied the Word of God in its entirety for 30 years. So many misconceptions have been drawn from the parables of Jesus. And one of the reasons for those misinterpretations and those misconceptions is due to the fact that often in their interpretive process they become overly complex. And they try to drive meaning in every little aspect of the parable itself. When I I loved what Dr. Bach said, he said that, no, you know, let's keep it simple. Let's understand who Jesus was trying to communicate to. And that isn't a slight in any way, shape, or form. He was simply trying to communicate enormous truths in simple ways so people could uh, understand them, embrace them, and apply them. But also realize that in these parables, he's also trying to reconstruct the idea of the manner in which the kingdom of God was going to be established here on this earth through his first coming. Again, they anticipated, and you see this all throughout the Gospels when you begin to look for it. They were continuously waiting for him to take the throne there in Jerusalem. In fact, even when you come to Acts chapter 1, you realize that just prior to his, to his ascension, they are still asking, now are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you not going to establish yourself as king? And of course we know they debated and who was going to be the greatest within the kingdom, even soliciting their mom to intervene on their behalf and saying, hey, can my son sit at your right hand and on your left? So Jesus, in giving these parables, was not only trying to dismantle a false expectation, but of course, set a new expectation. And the expectation is simple. The kingdom of God is going to start in a very small, and in the world's eyes, a very insignificant way. Let's think about that for a while. The great pastor and philosopher Frederick Dale Berner, he wrote this. He says, throughout history, sex and I, sex, I didn't say sex, sex, I, no, I just said it, no, sex and ideologies almost always seem stronger than the church. Sex and ideologies fly and the church seems to limp along. Sex and ideologies die, but the church limps on. He says, therefore, stick with the church. As a philosopher, he realized that over the course of history, in the 2,000 years since Christ established his church, ideas have come and gone. Religions have come and gone. But the church remains, fulfilling even what Jesus says, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But the manner in which it was going to begin was going to seem so insignificant to the disciples. After he left, it was the twelve. And I don't know about you, but if you were to go on, you know, any one of the uh, websites that offer resumes, would you have chosen Peter and John and James to be the ones that take the gospel into all the world? Fishermen from Galilee, not very well known by the intellectual community of that time? not have attending higher education in the city of Jerusalem, not having any kind of political influence amongst the people, and yet these are the men that God chose to turn the world upside down. And that's exactly what they did. 
As we look at this, of course, we see that in its simplicity, God is saying that the kingdom of heaven is going to start like the size of a mustard seed. And it's going to seem and appear to be completely insignificant in the world's eyes. But when that seed is planted, meaning you do with it as it was naturally designed to be dealt with, it is going to blossom forward and become something much greater than its initial state. Of course, a seed is irrelevant unless you plant it, right? And so what God is saying here, that He's asking them to do it in the prescribed manner in which He is putting forward. The natural way of using a seed is to plant it within the ground and to allow it to germinate and to allow it to bring forth the uh, plant that is within it. And he said, just like a mustard seed, the church is going to grow organically. The kingdom of God is going to expand organically, naturally, in the manner in which he has prescribed it to fulfill. Now, in this parable, there is an allusion to a passage found in Ezekiel chapter 17. In Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 22 to 24, this allusion would have been noticed by those who heard it. As the Lord spoke in verse 22, He said, Thus says the Lord God, I will also take one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop off the topmost part of its young twigs, a tender one, and will plant it on a high prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it, and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell the birds of every sort. In the shadows of its branches they will dwell." And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree, and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. This allusion, this allusion to this prophecy in Ezekiel was a hope that they held to. That God, of course, was going to bring back the nation of Israel and that He was once again going to exalt it to its zenith that it experienced under King David. Now the anticipation from all the Jews who saw the arrival of the Messiah the first time believed that He was going to do that in their lifetime. Of course, that's what solicited the various inquiries about the kingdom. And yet... Jesus said that that is still yet coming, and I believe that will be experienced in Revelation chapter 20 during a period of time that we know as the Millennial Kingdom. But as we sit and wait, let us understand that from the perspective of the disciples, they had a monumental task before them. And that task was given to them by their Lord and found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. 
And lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Amen. What a task. What an undertaking. Historians believe that at the time of Jesus Christ, the known world population was something around 200 million people. Of course, we know that that's a very hard number to come by, but that's what they, their best guess estimate is. Israel, at the time of Jesus Christ, was a, had a population of about five to 600,000 people. And out of that five and 600,000 people, 12 were selected. We know that that number grew 10 times uh, by the time that they were praying to about 120 gathering in the upper room there in Jerusalem waiting on the coming of the Holy Spirit. But still, still such a small, small handful of people. They didn't, of course, have the technology that we have today. They couldn't access the world through a social media account or YouTube or TikTok or one of the various other ones that are out there that could possibly reach the entire world and the entire corners of the world through the technology that they had at the time. But they did have a technology that was new to that culture for the Romans had built roads in between the cities like never before. They did so in a manner that allowed their military to move quickly across the face of the earth so they could govern by an iron hand the various nations in which they conquered and put under their thumb of control. But as they intended that for evil, God used those same roads to allow the gospel to spread throughout all the world. But there was another interesting development that you see looking back into history. Of course, the Romans succeeded the world governance of the Greek Empire. And of course, under Alexander the Great, something unique happened amongst the empire in which he established, and that was the speaking of the Greek language. After conquering a a, a certain area and a nation, they would then impose upon them the requirement of speaking Greek. They saw that as part of their assimilation of those various nations. And so vast language barriers were eliminated due to the fact that the Greek language was so prominent amongst the known world that now had been conquered by the Romans. That's why, of course, in the Bible you have Greek and Aramaic and you have Hebrew all uh, given to us there in the Bible. But this allowed for the gospel to travel further than ever could be expected. Now, Jesus himself never traveled more than 100 miles from the place in which he was born. He went to Egypt as a child, but uh, I have it on good sources that he doesn't really remember at that time seeing the pyramids for himself. It's like those people who take an infant to Disney World and they say, then they try to tell you that they're doing it for the child. Really? Really? I don't see the baby waiting in line for Pirates of the Caribbean. And yet, the task before these individuals, these simple fishermen, was to take the gospel into the known world. And yet they were empowered with something greater that anything that the world has ever seen prior. 
And this is why Jesus explicitly told them to wait in Jerusalem. Of course, in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? There's that question. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Don't worry about that right now. But, now here's what you should be concerned with. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The gospel, the natural way that it was going to go forward was in the vessels of clay, the individuals that God has saved through His grace, empowered by His Word and empowered by, I'm sorry, enlightened by His Word and empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is the way the gospel was going to go into all of the world. This is the way that the kingdom of God would become that tree from that mustard seed. This is the natural progression in which God had prescribed for His church to adopt to take the, world, the, the gospel into all of the known world. Now there's a very interesting verse that you read when you come to Acts 17, verse 6. Acts 17, verse 6. Of course, we're speaking of Paul here. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, Notice what they say here, and you can read it in context when you have a moment in Acts 17. These, these Christians who have turned the world upside down have come here too. This is extraordinary to consider. And if you think this is just hyperbole, or just a, a mere saying or a sentiment of exaggeration, let us also know what Paul stated. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, when he says, We give thanks to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying for you always, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you have heard before in the words of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard it and knew of the grace of God's truth. God in truth, excuse me. It's already happening. If historians were to look back on Christianity, they would think that the most significant recognition of Christianity took place under the reign of Emperor Constantine in Rome sometime between 307 to 337. They would think that that's when Christianity really began to uh, reach its zenith. I disagree with that. Because if you look after that, you find that Christianity started coming to a halt. Even though it was popularized by Romans and so forth, it also became vastly polluted. It was already going into all the world under the power of the Holy Spirit. And though historians would look back at Constantine's adoption and possible conversion to Christianity as the moment of, you know, 
of recognition that the world needed or required before embracing Christianity in the way that it had, let us understand that Paul, by 65, 70 A.D., was already stating that the gospel had gone into the known world through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the simplicity of the people in whom God chose to take and to advance His kingdom one step at a time. And if you do a serious study of the book of Acts, you will discover that the growth of the kingdom of of heaven didn't happen in these major explosions, but in simple steps, one right after another using simple people. People like you and I. And the kingdom of God began to advance into all of the known world, not through these huge, you know, demonstrations, but in these simple steps, one right after another. See, I believe that the the parable of the mustard seed is very simple, and it's also very encouraging. See, you and I may come to the conclusion that what we do on behalf of God And for the kingdom of heaven is so insignificant, it's not really making much of a difference whatsoever. We feel that we have a monumental task before us here in this nation. We do. And we think that it's going to take some unique uh, Cambian explosion, as evolutionists would like to say, before change can occur. But that's not the way it happened throughout the book of Acts. Oh yes, we had the example of Peter preaching to the 3,000 who were from the various areas of Israel and around the known Gentile world during the Feast of Pentecost and 3,000 got saved and undoubtedly they all went back into their various places of, uh, of life and shared the gospel with the people who are there. But we also have examples, very simple ones, but profound in their implications and ramifications. When Peter was led by the Holy Spirit to go and speak to the house of Cornelius, taking the gospel to just one family, a group of, uh, one member to a group of his family and friends, the gospel began to penetrate and spread throughout the known world. What about that time that Philip was in Samaria and he was doing such an incredible work there as as, uh, revival seemed to be breaking out. And then God transports him into the middle of the desert to hook up with one Ethiopian eunuch on his way back to Ethiopia. It would seem so insignificant in the grand scheme of things. But that Ethiopian just happened, luckily was reading, of course, out of the prophet Isaiah, not knowing the the identity of the one in whom Isaiah was speaking of. The Ethiopian eunuch, of course, then received Christ and was baptized. And immediately after that, Philip was taken back uh, by the Lord to another place. It would seem that that was so insignificant, but historians tell us that that was the introduction of the gospel to the Ethiopian community. It seems so insignificant. It seems so irrelevant. It seems so ridiculous in the grand scheme of things, and yet God was perfectly plotting out and planning each step of the advance of the gospel and the expansion of the kingdom of heaven. What about Paul? 
when he came to the epicenter of philosophy in Acts chapter 17. And he found himself amongst the philosophers and of course gives that incredible message in which he did, but let us realize that as soon as he spoke on the resurrection, many of them departed and left and wanted nothing more to do with the conversation because it flew into the face of the philosophical ideas that they have already adopted. And yet, through Paul, the gospel started making its way through the philosophical circles of the known world there in Athens. One of my favorite, though, has to be this unique encounter of Paul with a lady named Lydia in Acts chapter 16. It said that when he entered into the town in which he did, Ephesus, that he couldn't find any Christians gathering except for a group of women down by the riverside. They were holding church in a van down by a river. If you know that quote, you've watched too much Saturday Night Live. And yet from there, a dynamic church starts that already falls into problem by Revelation chapter 2. This is the group of people that he comes back to and talks to the elders of in Acts 20. This is the people that he writes, the book of Ephesians 2, one of the greatest epistles of theology that we have in the Bible. But by the time Revelation is written by John, which I believe was written around 95 AD by John on the island of Patmos, Ephesus had already lost their first love. Each and every time these apparent insignificant moments seem to take place, God uses them greatly. And that's why it's such an encouragement to us today. As many would sum up our, our uh, circumstances as we are simply a mouse fighting a gorilla, let us understand that with the power of the Holy Spirit, we are always the majority. We are always the dominant power. And as a result, we should not be afraid but allow the Spirit to equip us with boldness and take the gospel into the worlds in which we occupy. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 makes it abundantly clear that all of us play a role in what God is doing in the kingdom of heaven. That all of us are a portion of the body of Christ in one way or another. And some of those that we may feel irrelevant are some of the most significant Paul outlines for us. Because often, like I say, as we go about our daily lives, we may feel in our heart that we are not making a difference for God. Let God determine that. Let God be the judge of that. Because often we are not going to know the culmination of our fruit until we get to heaven. I think of Jeremiah. We're studying the book of Lamentations on Wednesday nights. And, of course, written by Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, after his years of ministry trying to reach uh, the nation of Judah for, the gospel, uh, for, for God, trying to call them back to repentance, it would be easy to, su- to summarize at the end of Jeremiah that his ministry was a failure. But his ministry accomplished exactly what God wanted it to accomplish. God doesn't reward us on the basis of commission. Meaning the more fruit that we produce, the more He rewards us. The producing of fruit in and through our lives is a work of the Holy Spirit. We really cannot take credit for it. We cannot take credit for it. 
The basis of our judgment before God is not based upon what we offer or what skills we bring to the table. It is all found in one word, faithfulness, to whatever God has called you to. And nothing illustrates this better than a young lady found in the book of Acts chapter 9. I can only imagine, based on the limited information that we have about her, that the events of her everyday life was nothing to take notice of. It was ordinary. In fact, it's possible that individuals paid her no attention whatsoever. Of course, we know the subjection that women were faced with at that time and the difficulties in which they had. But yet, because of the impact of what she did do, Peter was asked to come and to raise her from the dead. And when Peter came and they asked him to see her and tend to her, The Bible states that they showed her the garments and the tunics in which she had made for them. And they loved her for that simple act of kindness and love. Enough to intercede on her behalf and have Peter come and to lay his hands and pray on her and of course restore her life to her. I'm speaking of Dorcas. In Acts chapter 9, the Bible records for us the simple acts of kindness in which she rendered And how God used it to touch the hearts of the people that were around her. We don't know anything more about her. But the one thing that she could do is make these tunics, these clothing, these garments for people who may not have had anything. Does she say in her heart, this is the one thing that I can do to show the love of God? And God recorded that for us for all eternity in His Word. Do you think she was shocked when she got to heaven? And Jesus said to her, hey, I gave you a shout out in Acts 9. Did you read about it? No, I had no idea. I think more than ever, we need to remember what Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not... I'm sorry, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This is what we need to embrace. This needs to be the motivation of our heart today. And what you do on behalf of the Lord, even though in the world's eyes it will never be noticed, and it will be categorized as completely insignificant and of no value, let God determine its value. Let God decide. Because you're not the only one fighting the battle today. He has many that he is working through here in the United States of America to bring the gospel into all of the various areas of our society. 
And often, again, we feel like we're just so small in the grand scheme of things, and we are. But it's not based on our ability, is it? Though we may be small, our God is mighty. And we may be insignificant, and rightfully so, but our God is sovereign. And nothing that man does will ever thwart the plans in which he puts forward for his people. For the work that he has begun in you, he is faithful to complete. And we long for the day that we stand before him and hear those words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your Lord.